Good afternoon and welcome. I say good afternoon. I also say good morning and good evening, depending on from where you're joining us from. My name is Monica Krauss. I'm an associate professor of sociology at the LSE and also a co-director of LSE Human Rights. I'm very pleased to welcome you to the LSE and to this lecture entitled The Human in Human Rights, which is the first in a three-part lecture series delivered by Professor Craig Calhoun. It's a lecture series. It will also be available as a podcast a few days after our live events. Craig Calhoun is a university professor of the social sciences at Arizona State University and also a centennial professor here at the LSE. I'd venture to introduce Craig as the world's foremost scholar of social solidarity, a concern that has run through his work and is both a deeply analytical concern and, and a deeply ethical concern. He has written numerous books and articles and his work has shaped people's understanding of social movements, nationalism, cosmopolitanism, humanitarianism and democracy in many different countries. We are very happy here at the LSE to be able to welcome Craig back to the LSE, where he is, of course, also a former director. I understand Craig will be speaking for about 45 minutes, after which there will be time for your questions and Craig's answer. I'll invite you to submit your questions via the question and answer chat. I note that you also have an opportunity to vote on other people's questions and reinforce other people's points. Um, you can also submit questions via our Facebook feed. So I'll do my very best to get to your questions, uh, to as many of them as I can. Thank you everyone for coming and thank you, Craig. And with that, I hand over to you. Well, thank you very much, Monica. And it's a pleasure to almost be at the London School of Economics for this event, at least to be connected virtually. This lecture was originally planned for February, and it was the first of what became a whole series of cancellations for me during this period of COVID. This period of COVID has been uh, disastrous in many ways, with disasters made worse often by politics, um, and uh, it's something of a relief to return to a topic other than uh, the degeneration of democracy and the crises of contemporary public life and public health. Uh, not totally unconnected, but mostly. Let me now proceed and with luck succeed in sharing my screen. And I assume someone will tell me if that didn't work. I have to admit, I was not a Zoom user before COVID, but I think I'm not alone in that. So this is, as Monica said, the first in a series of lectures which take up transformations of the human, questions raised about the very nature of being human. The uh, idea is widespread that humanity is obvious. Of course we know what human beings are. We don't have to stop and think about that. But even with this sort of canonical example, we do have to stop and think, right? Apparently, 
God created human beings, male and female. And it should be clear what that means, but it's not entirely clear what that means. It's not entirely clear whether God um, intended this to be a prescription for binaries ever after. These original human beings seem to be white, somewhat improbably, given where we think the Garden of Eden might have been located. They are curiously social and communicative, even though they are pre-cultural, since the stories of the creation of culture follow from the expulsion of the Garden of Eden. Nonetheless, they're ready for the fruit of the tree of knowledge. They seem to have language to communicate with each other and with the serpent, um, and they're embedded in a narrative, a narrative of creation in some sense. Um, that can be later rethought as a narrative of evolution, and the difference itself matters, making it less obvious what human beings are. And this is some sort of start, not an advanced stage of that evolution. So the relationship between the human beings, their environment, the rest of nature is a question. So is what it means that they seem to be so young and healthy when not all of us are. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, that in many ways ushered in our modern era of thinking about human rights, spends no time at all defining the human. It simply begins by declaring that recognition of the inherent dignity and the equal and unalienable rights of all the members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. We're expected to know who's in that human family. And in fact, almost all of the discussion of the Universal Declaration and of the um, issue of human rights has been about how to extend or enforce rights, how to extend them by including everyone into the umbrella, under the umbrella of rights, but also how to make sure that they are in some way enforced, including by states that nominally agree to various international declarations and treaties. Some of the criticisms of the concept of rights bear on closely related issues, like whether the concept is too individualistic. But it's remarkable that most of the discussion hasn't really returned to the question of what it is to be human until very recently and under pressure of some significant changes. The UN today, and this is literally a quote from the current website a few days ago, says human rights are rights inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, sex, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. So we get the idea. The emphasis is on the all here, not the what. The human beings may look a bit different from each other, but we recognize them all as clearly human this concept encompasses difference. But human's not a self-evident category. Understanding humanity as a set of equivalent individuals is historically distinctive. Transcending kinship, religion, nationality, and the like, replacing webs of specific ties with equivalents among strangers provide for universal rights, but they're innovations. Right? They're a shift from a society of status and conflict. Status and contract, conflict too. This is linked not only to ethical universalism, but as Agamben has put it, to a notion of bare life, to an ability to distinguish the minimal conditions of being human and the minimal conditions of being a life, 
from all of the richer, more complex ways in which actual humans mostly live in cultures, in social relations, in institutions, with a variety of uh, capacities and assistance from others and from things they have enlisted. It's also a notion that is shaped by state administration. The point of view of uh, ethical universalism can be the divine, the religious, but it is often the state administering populations of people that generates this idea of humanity as a set of equivalent individuals. This is a categorical construction in contrast to earlier formulations. It's a construct of universality. It places a priority on being human, as we just saw in the UN quote, ahead of everything else, ahead of race and nationality and gender and so forth. Human is common and it's prior. It's distinct from non-humans. And this way of thinking about it requires that some distinction from non-humans be made because the only way in which we can say the um, human rights umbrella has extended over everyone is to know who counts, to have some sort of limit. We could say human rights and the rights of all sentient beings, and then try to extend the rights to all sentient beings. But this logic of sets, this logic of a category, requires some sort of perimeter, and we tend to make that as a distinction from non-humans. Now, this is all in contrast with various other vocabularies of inclusion. Within the Christian religious tradition and some others, a language of brotherhood, fraternite, made less sexist by saying solidarity, is a language of inclusion, but it's a language of inclusion based on connections. So we have two different ideas here, I'll come back to this, about how to be connected, and a very long history of connection through notions of uh, relationships with other people and a newer idea of categories of similarity or equivalence, say, before the law, that unite strangers. The older idea is expressed in various ways. It's the idea of kinship, for example, but it's also the idea of the great chain of being that all matter in life is connected in a hierarchy and that humans are located in this hierarchy, below angels, above animals, with dominion over animals. This is a particular Western way of constructing it, rooted in Plato um, and the Greeks and recast in the Christian tradition, but there are other versions of hierarchy. Um, other ways in which hierarchical inclusion is organized and life is understood in this way as a hierarchical mode of connection among everything. And this is echoed in various other hierarchies, hierarchies among humans, like the feudal order of ranks and statuses, lord and knight and serf and so forth, 
or indeed hierarchies among angels, in which there are archangels and seraphim and a variety of different angels. Um, and once we actually knew what those were, though relatively few people think about that today, it's a hierarchy idea that was taken up by Linnaeus when he began to organize taxonomies of plants in the early modern era and shaped the way we think about biology and still the way in which we organize our references to nature. But it's not the way in which we think about human rights and much else today. We think in terms of categories of similarity and equivalence, sets of people who fit into the sets. Now, I'm just being cute, or think I am, to have these two different representations of business people. All right. That top one is actually a bit of commercial marketing for a set of dolls of business people, but that's not relevant. Right? The important thing is that it's a set. It is a group of apparently equivalent figures, equivalent insofar as they all fit into the set. Right? It is like clanship in much of the anthropological literature on uh, kinship-based societies, clanship contrasted to lineage, because lineage is a kind of network, a tracing of relationships from parents to children, among cousins and other relatives. The great anthropologist Siegfried Nadel took this and generalized it into the contrast between category and network, with which we work today, and which I'm arguing is crucial to understanding human rights. So category is a break with relational understanding. It's not just a break made in some recent thinking. It's a distinction, as the Nadel example, clan and lineage make clear, that is already at work in a variety of social contexts. But the axial age religions place a new premium on categorical understandings, and modernity further reinforces that premium. We have a whole pervasive set of categories that we talk about race and gender and class, paradigmatically, nation, right? Citizens are a category of people equal before the law. Immigrants, a category of people who are in a particular relationship to the state, but usually not citizens, right? When we speak of the 1%, we speak of a category of people by virtue of their wealth or income, not of specific relationships among them or to us. Most of the demographic background variables of social science address these kind of categories. We ask things like, is the relationship between income and schooling the same if we control for race or gender, right? This sometimes masks relationality. For example, there may be power or domination that is involved in the construction. Race can be taken and presented as though it's just some sort of objective category, or we can recognize that race is constructed in large part by racism and by actions of domination. The same goes for class. When we say class is a relationship, not simply a category. But these are questions and contentions about these pervasive categories. It remains the case that we think often in terms of categories, including the category of humans. It's a challenge to try to retain a relational perspective or to bring one back, one that a variety of social scientists have taken up, um, including 
one of this is one of the few things that joins Bruno Latour and Pierre Bourdieu, who, as some of you will know, were not best friends, but shared an effort to develop a relational approach to social science. Human rights and humanitarianism are interestingly positioned in relationship to this, dominated by the emergence of a categorical logic. They share a great deal of roots, I should say, and we can speak together of the tradition behind human rights and humanitarianism, although we always have to keep in mind the ways in which they diverged in the 20th century as they became different approaches to action in the world. And in particular, as the distinction grew between intervening for human rights and witnessing human suffering in humanitarianism. The Lisbon earthquake of 1755 um, was at this point of transition. Right? It was a disaster. There was response to the emergency. Britain was particularly involved in the response to the emergency because of a connection, because of its port trade and textile trade with Portugal. Right? And so Britain was among the first to send international assistance, although communications being what they were then, that took quite a while afterwards. Yet at the same time, this wasn't the modern understanding of a um, simple accident right? or a, an emergency caused by human action. It was in a complicated relationship to the divine as the angels in the picture set out. But the idea of humanitarianism emerges as a response to the suffering and a sort of categorical imperative to aid those suffering. Now, the American earthquake of almost the same period of time had a slightly different character, but also got engaged in this connections or categories questions and helped to further thinking in terms of human rights with the famous articulation of unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's worth noting that the declaration didn't just say people happen to be alive, they happen to be free, and they happen to pursue their own happiness. It didn't offer these simply as descriptions of the human estate, it declared them to be rights, thus committing itself to equivalence and equality and thinking of all of the people this way though the question of who counts as the people remained open. The human rights approach that is suggested here is a response to a violation, a claim in the Declaration of Independence that the rights of Americans have been violated by the parent company, country, right? It's an attempt to seek justice and these remain important parts of the human rights tradition. But it's very important that the human rights be articulated as pre-political, Clearly, they are embedded in a politically fraught terrain of international relations, governance, and governance failures. The Declaration of Independence is a political document, to be sure, but it is claiming that it is a pre-political fact that our creator has endowed us with these inalienable rights, which are the basis for the political act of declaring independence. Claims on the basis of common humanity are always potentially claims against politics. They indict the limits of civil rights, 
civic rights articulated as national rights or sometimes rights to the city or whatever, and rights based on particular statuses or contracts. It's worth noting that they indict both. Let me underscore that. That is, claims based on common humanity are claims that challenge the older idea of statuses, that is the feudal and aristocratic order, and challenge the claims of modern states to a monopoly on defining justice or the good. The right to have rights, Hannah Arendt's famous phrase, is not a reflection of citizenship, but a demand to recognize a prior entitlement against the anomalies of actual citizenship. Arendt is particularly concerned with the non-citizen who is left out of a world system that apparently is organized so that nation states cover the entire face of the world, but then clearly leave refugees and non-citizens out. There's also a long tradition of looking at the unfree citizen, of thinking about rights in terms of oppression, domination, and the ways in which the unfree citizen cannot be fully human. This, by the way, is addressed in a really nice recent article by Aicha Chibucha. There is a sacralization of the human being involved in all of this. The human becomes an ultimate value. This is not just the famous people are created in the image of God notion, though it is obviously shaped by that within one historical tradition. It's a new kind of secular secularization of the human being. It's basic to the claim that we should care about those who are suffering or about humanity as such. It's basic in human rights to the absolute value of individual cases. John F. Kennedy said, the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one are violated. A good formulation of a much more widespread thought. And it's distinctive in human rights, that there is an emphasis on the individual, right? that human rights violations are treated as absolutes, as a kind of trump card, not taken to be sort of statistics. Oh, well, this country is 83% good on human rights, whatever, right? The issue is, are there human rights violations? And everyone in the set of humans then is taken to be equivalently deserving of freedom from violation. This is, I said, a preeminent example of the secular sacred. Sometimes the secular and the sacred are radically opposed to each other, as though the sacred is only of significance for people who are a part of organized religion, and that all other organizations of life are devoid of any sense of sacred, of a higher good. But the human rights discourse clearly presents the human as sacred, as a higher good in this sense. It's also worth noting that secularity is something that exists within religious traditions, not just outside of them. But in any case, we see in modern individualism and in the idea of humanism as a kind of alternative to religion, the sacralization of the human. This has a long history in natural law, religion, I'm most familiar with the Western versions of it, but it has multiple histories in multiple settings. 
My focus right now is on how it faces new challenges today that have implications for human rights and for much else. But let me go back to the 16th century. Really what I'm doing is not tracing the history of this thought so much as trying to convince you that there is a history, that we can't treat the human as obvious, and that we can't treat our current understandings of the human as though they don't have a past and as though there aren't other possibilities. Spanish conquest of parts of the so-called New World raised basic questions. It introduced Europeans to new diversity. Europeans knew diversity, right? The Crusades had happened. There were diversities within Europe and so forth. The Roman Empire had diversity. This was a particularly challenging one for Catholic thinkers because neither the Greek historians nor the church had known of these new world indigenous peoples. And so a question came to be, right? Are they people in all senses? Are they human? If human, are they a lesser kind of human? And in fact, Aristotle's idea of natural slavery gets adduced to say, well, they are lesser humans and they should be slaves. The Pope, influenced by Bartolomeo de las Casas, declares that the natives of the New World have reason and souls and therefore must be treated as human. The Spanish king calls for advice from his theologians, and in Valladolid there is a formal disputation, the kind of old scholastic disputation, with the two central characters of Las Casas and Sepulveda, right, two major figures in emerging thought, both humanists um, in the uh, uh, theological Renaissance sense, right, but arguing different cases. Now, it's worth noting, as I say at the bottom, neither side wins, neither side argues the case, just let the people of the new world be, right? Both assume that it's necessary for the Spanish state to have a position and take action in relationship to them. The question is, what action? Las Casas says these are people who are free in nature, innocent, therefore must be treated as innocent under international law, which already by this time has a clear notion of the obligation of everyone to provide care for the innocent. And if they are to be converted to Christianity, which is surely a good thing, it should be by reason. Sepulveda says, these are anti-human perpetrators of sacrifice. The picture on the slide um, comes from the Menendez Codex, right? From a 16th century Aztec self-portrayal right, that was brought to and used in the disputation in order to show the anti-human character of the Aztecs who engaged in this grotesque behavior of cutting out the hearts of the victims of sacrifice. This, Sepulveda said, showed that they were not innocent natural beings, right? They were inferior beings, natural slaves, and conversion should proceed by violence, and indeed government should proceed by violence. Well, what happens is that both missionary activity and murder coexist in the treatment of the indigenous peoples of the new world, and they do partly because of this theological grounding, but partly because political domination and economic exploitation are also joined in sealing their fate. But this 
set of issues stay on the agenda for a long time. The anti-slavery struggle has a challenge in establishing the common humanity of African slaves and other slaves in some cases. But particularly with regard to African slaves, something of the logic of the lesser being, natural slave, persists. And so there's a struggle to declare that the African slaves are human. The metal in the picture on the right is a Wedgwood um, casting from 1786. The Wedgwood point is noteworthy. I'm not just pandering to anyone's British sensibilities in this talk, but Wedgwood is a prominent Methodist and an advocate of significance in this. And Methodism is a significant um, factor in the anti-slavery movement and forerunner of parts of the human rights discourse. But note the text on the medal. Am I not a man, category, and a brother, relationship, as articulated more often in religion, less often in new discourses of human rights? And almost the, well, 50, 60 years later, Sojourner Truth right, um, not only extends the image of the suffering Black American to a woman, right, but argues that categorical humanity is constructed against the less human and that this has forms that can be directly challenged in performance. To give a brilliant speech, to demonstrate reason and command of language is to challenge the claims of dehumanization of the ignorant and inarticulate savage who must be brought under the domination of the slave owner. And of course, she says, this is a matter for women as well as people of color, and especially for those for whom the categories intersect. Now, there are a variety of ways in which the human gets identified. Once we start down the path of a categorical distinction, a lot of the effort to identify the human is by contrasts. For example, contrast to angels. A central contrast is that humans are mortal. It becomes the theme of a wonderful Fassbender film, but we have not just modern images of this, but 2000 years of reckoning with the place of angels in the world, and the issue of immortality that they embody, inherited of course, from pre-Christian accounts of the gods. There's also a set of distinctions from animals that are significant. Humans are held to have language and reason. This chimp tries to make the case that reason and language are not entirely unique to human beings. And we've learned a lot more about animal language and cognition since, but this is a very pervasive distinction, and even in articulating animal rights, we often reiterate the distinction of human beings from animals. Then there are distinctions from machines. There are humanoid machines, but there are all kinds of machines. The 17th century was fascinated by mechanical devices. The paradigmatic one is the clock, the watch. The question of whether the watch has self-movement, well, it has to be wound up. Well, could you create machines that had self-movement? And if they had self-movement, would it only be a transfer of intentionality from their creator 
or could they have intentionality? In general, the early modern discussions of machines issue in the idea that machines don't have intentionality and full self-movement. The perpetual motion machine is never discovered. And so there are sharp distinctions of humans from machines. These are challenged in some ways in the contemporary world of artificial intelligence, which will be the theme of my third lecture, along with other things. But I will note, they were, have been challenged throughout. And in that third lecture, I will cite Thomas Hobbes and his account of the state as a kind of artificial person, but also a sort of machine. A true human has also long been contrasted to monsters and to aliens, just other categories of beings that aren't quite human. Monsters come in various forms, right? They're artificial creatures like Frankenstein's creature, right? And one of the questions of the novel Frankenstein is whether Frankenstein is human. The novel consists mostly of Frankenstein behaving with better exemplifications of many human virtues than the people around him, though ultimately it sort of concedes that he doesn't quite fit in. Right? And the artificial creature um, is a long-standing theme, the golem in the Jewish tradition. Monsters also appear as anomalies, as normative violations, and help to give an articulation of the true and proper human by contrast to various kinds of improperly constructed or constituted humans, normative violations, great theme of Michel Foucault. But we can think of conjoined twins, hermaphrodites, and so forth. And indeed, recognize that not just these were troubling cases in various ways. They were legal cases. They were challenges. They were subjected to medical treatment, but also museums around the world displayed these monsters. And then there's an idea of monsters as the result of corruption. You can contrast Gollum in the Ring series to Gollum, right? Gollum is a hobbit gone bad and an exemplary figure for the notion that the human isn't just fixed. It can be nurtured, but it can also be corrupted into the inhuman, into the no longer human, into a creature that lacks the basic sensibilities or requirements for consideration as human. And we're left on the boundary with Gollum, but the point here is not the Tolkien novels. The point is that thinking about monsters has been a very powerful way in which people have thought about what it is to be human. And it hasn't gone away. There's been a recent fascination with monsters in various contexts, um, including the anniversary of Frankenstein. But it's also still a term of racialized dehumanization, as when President Trump called Senator Kamala Harris a monster. Aliens are another version of the not quite human that enables us to think through what it is to be human. Like ETU's picture I just showed, they are commonly anthropomorphized. And indeed, film kind of presses anthropomorphization on us. But a huge amount of the thinking about aliens is, are there little green men, right? That is, are there creatures who are more or less like us, but not quite on Mars or somewhere farther away in space, right? 
more challenging is to think the non-human as not so much like human or to think differences that don't inhere simply in bodily form. Right? The Chinese trilogy, The Three-Body Problem, a major novel of um, the last few years, is still unfilmed. It keeps being postponed. An effort to film it is underway, but one of the challenges is that the non-humans in the three-body problem are really much more radically non-human than little green men. A challenge for the screen. Typically, aliens are portrayed as either subhuman or superhuman or all too human. There are three basic lessons that get made. Here are these aliens and there's something wrong with them. Here are these aliens and they're superheroes like Superman himself, right? Or here are these aliens and they look different, but ultimately we can see in their behavior that they are all too human. It's worth noting, this is just by way of interest, that the Oxford English Dictionary definition of the human says there are, um, it says in general, it's about the members of the species. And then it says it's of um, or about a characteristic of people as opposed to God or animals or machines, what I've just been talking about, especially in being susceptible to weaknesses. They are only human. Or, right, a characteristic of people's better qualities, such as kindness or sensitivity, as in the human side of politics is getting stronger. So we use the human either to call out our weaknesses or to call out our potential for goodness as much as we use it as a neutral description. Well, all of these contrasts are weakening, and that's, in a way, a challenge for us. We have various challenges in particular arenas, right? Can a human being, using various kinds of technological assistance, compete in sport alongside or against human beings who don't have that particular technological assistance. And it's a large and complicated issue from taking steroids through to running on blades. Right? Are these things that enable people to realize their full potential? Or are these things that enhance beyond proper human potential? creating unfairness. Similar issues have been infused into the debates about transgender people, although that's complicated by other things as well. And there are a variety of other ways in which human beings may be enhanced, drugs or neural implants or two. But the point is to a whole broad way in which the contrasts are weakening. Transhumanism is the label sometimes given for the pursuit of a kind of secular transcendence, though in fact it's often highly sacralized, even made more or less religious or at least post-secular, as the current phrase has it. Artificial intelligence brings remarkable advances in machine intelligence. Machine learning has enabled um, not just computer success at Go, but a variety of highly um, efficient um, systems operating in the world. Most of AI is actually these systems, whether they are making driverless cars or they are operating air traffic control or whatever they're doing. But a kind of holy grail 
is what gets called general intelligence, human-like intelligence, intelligence that is transposable across different fields. Because AI in general is harnessed to particular kinds of tasks at which it can become remarkably good and much better than humans, but hasn't yet become good at crossing the boundaries of different task and performance domains, which will be taken to be more human. But it's clear that artificial intelligence is challenging the limits of our thinking about the human. We learn more and more about the intelligence of other animals. This also challenges our limits to the human. We talk not just to chimpanzees, but dolphins. And here, I, my picture of Margaret Mead is, is only semi-relevant. It's the picture of Gregory Bateson that is important. And Gregory Bateson, aside from being Margaret Mead's husband for a time, um, is an extraordinary, interesting anthropologist who is active in the research and talking to dolphins, was present at the beginning of artificial intelligence, the naming of cybernetics, um, and in the early Silicon Valley history, um, and in the founding of the old Whole Earth Catalog. He had his own co-evolution quarterly and was powerful force in the early days of the environment and deep ecology movements. So I want to recognize Bateson in this, but I want to take that as a segue to the Whole Earth Catalog, which among other things, represents the whole earth in a striking way, using NASA satellite photography, NASA actually photography from space, that gives a picture of the whole earth of a kind that had not been seen before, that becomes thematized in new kinds of environmental thinking about the earth as a whole that eventually begin to include a recasting of the human, not just as in dominion, but as part of this earth that can be seen from a distance. Now, of course, we have genetic engineering. This is my next lecture theme. But that is we have a variety of ways to alter the body and brain of humans or I should say body, including brain. I should say brain that is embodied because one of the oddities of our discussion is that we contrast brain to body. And when we start thinking we are going to achieve immortality by means of technology, we imagine it's our brain that is at issue. People get themselves frozen at high cost in order that their brains may be sliced and treated as sources of information to be uploaded into new future sophisticated computational equipment so that they can live forever in which they imagine themselves, the human, to be all in the head as it were, rather than in a distributed nervous system and in a set of relationships between the body and the outside of the world. And we could go further with that theme into the world of biomics and the discoveries of the huge amounts of genetic content in our bodies that is microbial organisms and otherwise not what we think of as human, maybe not even what we think of as us, though it is perhaps the majority of what is us in another sense at any one moment. But genetic engineering is a particular challenge because genes are like the new souls. They are the way discursively we have come to identify both the universality of humans and the uniqueness of each human. And genetic engineering proposes human action to change genetic makeup, perhaps just therapeutic to avoid certain diseases, 
perhaps to enhance capabilities in various ways. There are lots of challenges. I'm not going to go into them because it's the theme for next time. I just want to suggest it's an important theme. While it's not quite as far advanced as people sometimes think, that is, there's a distance between changing genes and changing their representation in actual morphology and behavior. Nonetheless, right, huge strides are being made. The Nobel Prize was just given to Jennifer Dudna, pictured here, um, for her work in genetic engineering. She's been a pioneer but also somebody who's pointed out their ethical questions. When the field as a whole has kind of said, yeah, we can regulate ourselves. Don't bring in any kind of regulation. Don't try to save the human. Don't ask hard questions like, do parents own their children and on that basis have an entitlement to have them genetically altered? She said, we have to ask those questions. And indeed we do. So in closing, all this reminds us that the claims of common humanity are embedded in complex relations of many kinds, including economic relations. Artificial intelligence and gene editing are not just science in the sense of some neutral and abstract pursuit of truth. They are big business with big money behind them and various relationships to national governments entwining politics and economics. Human rights appeals must address corporations as well as states. And we have to ask, following Hobbes, whether corporations and states are really machines and how human-like those machines are. But that will be the theme for my third lecture. How will human rights deal with the destabilization of the category of human? That's the core question I've wanted to put on the table today. I can't answer it completely, but it's a basic question for us to think about and discuss. Will encompassing a new range of differences and fuzzy cases fit within a categorical logic? We've lived with monsters and aliens and a variety of other border creatures for a long time. Will we have too many border creatures for the categorical notion of the human to be sustainable? Or will there be new versions of a logic of connections, a shift away from categorical logic to greater emphasis on the ways we are connected to each other and indeed to the rest of existence? Thank you. Thank you very much, Craig. One of the things we're missing these days are rounds of, rounds of applause, which um, I, so I'd invite us all to imagine a round of applause and a round of applause is to give thanks to the speaker and, and uh, recognition for the speaker. It also affirms the community of those who've been listening. It also gives people a chance to gather their thoughts um, and ask questions. So here's my pause for the round of applause and we look forward to discussing the issues you raised with you. I have um, two I'm very questions. grateful for that applause. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I know it wasn't as loud as it should be. Um, I'll start us off with uh, two questions um, that uh, don't necessarily belong together. One is by Professor Francesca Klug with LSE Human Rights, who asks you to comment on the differences among uh, 
conceptualizations of human rights. So there is the um, American version in the Declaration of Independence, which is liberty seeking, happiness seeking, but she notes that the authors of the Universal Declarations have thought very much about this question and have relied on a more collectivist vision, which is reflected in the text. Okay, um, can I answer that one before you go to the second one? Of course. All right, because I'll forget otherwise. The, and I forgot already to have a pen and paper to be able to write down questions. The, uh, it's an important question, Francesca's quite right to ask it. It has, um, some of it has to do with the question of what we think it is to be human. And in particular, what she calls the collectivist orientation raises the question of, do we think human beings are discrete individuals? Um, such that we can carry out the whole discussion of human rights, or for that matter, a discussion of artificial intelligence, as though it's all a matter of discrete individuals, or do we think there is a kind of interdependent connected logic, what I was calling a relational logic, in which human beings exist only in their relations to each other? Now, I don't think that the uh, Universal Declaration actually articulates a clearly relational logic, it does give much more recognition to various kinds of uh, groupings and organizations. It's fairly state-centered, right? The Universal Declaration um, is predominantly oriented to the relation of people to states, but um, the, the relationship is um, also among people and beyond people in this. The Already in the 18th century, the French... Uh, Declaration of the Rights of Man articulate a slightly different vision, slightly different agenda. But the differences in most cases are in what rights are articulated, how those rights are thought to work, and how enforcement might work. So you have various extensions, a right to work, for example. Is there a right to work, a right to a basic income, a right, right? There are a variety of social and economic rights that some would suggest should be added to the Universal Declaration. Sadly, I think the reality is that if the Universal Declaration were brought to all the signatory states um, who signed it in the two or three years after it was announced in 1948, the majority of them would not sign it today. So trying to extend those rights may be a challenge. But that's in the rights side of it, not the human side of it. Thank you. I have uh, another question from James Biddix, who is a alumnus of the LSE from Bristol. Isn't our understanding, he asks, of humanity in the West still reliant on Christian assumptions? What are the consequences of this when Christian assumptions are no longer as prevalent? Okay, great question. So yes, um, first, the history is still there. Um, and many of our assumptions and vocabularies that we think of as not religious or not Christian are influenced by that history. Second, Christianity never was the majority religion of the world, um, and there have always been other traditions. I speak as a Euro-American from within largely the Christian Western tradition, um, but uh, it's the case that there are a number of other traditions that articulate accounts of what it is to be human, often different accounts. The human rights account is particularly embedded in the Western history. It can be taken up elsewhere, and human rights are often taken up, but taken up in challenge to various kinds of hierarchies, just as they were to 
aristocratic hierarchies in the West. Um, but a basic question is, what are we going to do with this religious inheritance? James, I think, is asking also about how does it matter that there are so few Christians now if the vocabulary is dependent on Christianity? Does it lose its renewal and reinforcement? Um, it certainly matters, uh, but I think it isn't a complete radical break. First, Christians haven't entirely disappeared. And second, there is a more or less secular extension of much of the same thinking um, in worlds of humanitarian action, in human rights enforcement, and in various settings where people may not be specifically enacting religious faith, but are influenced by the ways of thinking and the ways of feeling and valuing that have come out of those traditions. Thank you. Um, I, I have another question that I, I think pushes us um, forward uh, in an interesting ways. Kevin Dykes with Southwark Council asks, are refugees my, and migrants throughout the world being conceptualized not just by extremists, but by more mainstream commentators as other than or less than human? And can your idea of connections, or might we say relationality, turn this problem into a new start for campaigning for human rights? Thanks, Kevin. I, I certainly hope so on the last part. And this isn't you know, uniquely me. I think people have tried in various ways to articulate connections. Um, It hasn't always worked well, and the connections aren't always the right ones. If you look at the response to migrants in Europe, it's been heavily influenced by previous colonial um, imperial connections to countries. And there's, oh, it's okay if they're coming from one of our former colonies. Um, it's different if they're coming from somewhere else. That's you know ambiguous. There's a helpful side and an unhelpful side to that. More generally, I think thinking in terms of connections could be very helpful. Migrants and refugees are very strongly othered, whether they are thought of as less than human or simply not us and not citizens is a continuum. It's not an either or proposition, but there is a lot of uh, dehumanization that goes on in the way migrants are thought about and refugees are thought about because our thinking of what it is to be normally human is implicitly in relationship to a variety of situations that we don't clearly talk about when we talk about human rights in this strongly disembedded individualistic sense. Um, I'm going to resist the temptation to go on and distinguish refugees from migrants and talk about this further, except for one important thing. Um, Kevin talks about campaigning, and there's going to have to be a lot more campaigning because refugees who are going to be you know, an enormous issue for the future of the world and therefore the future of all differently positioned nation states in the world in coming years. Climate is likely to exacerbate the number of refugees. Um, the destabilization of states, the emergence of various conflicts, further problems. So the modern notion of human rights is closely tied to the figure of the refugee in the era of World War II. Um, and we are, has been extended in a variety of different ways. It's likely to return to a heavy focus on refugees. 
Thank you. Back to some of the fundamental questions about the human. Maya Biles notes that there's a long tradition of stories that have dealt with the fact that part of humanity, but maybe also part of every human is animalistic. So for example, raised by Jekyll and Hyde and other such stories. How does that history impact our understanding of what a human being is and what might be the problems with this theological mythical basis for human rights? Okay, big and complicated topic. Um, I'll try to be brief. I'm actually not good at being brief, but this lecture is one of the few times I've stayed within the time limit. So we have some time. The first thing to say is that we use animalistic usually in a way to describe what we think of as our base or lesser um, character. Um, the uh, you know, we talk about our better angels. We talk about our animalistic side. Um, it's not clear to me that um, that's a sound way to think about um, either animals in general, other animals, or about the biological, physical side of human beings, that it is something to be seen as bad. That reflects its own kind of binary history of mind over body and dualisms um, in various ways, Christian um, denigration. This is something in which the Christian tradition is actually a problem, um, the way in which bodies have been thought of and so forth. I think that this is one of the areas where a what has seemed a fairly sharp categorical distinction to us is breaking down. Um, I've said it's breaking down partly because we recognize um, more of the positive features of other animals. But let me say it's also breaking down as we learn more about ourselves as embodied beings. Um, and this is where biology comes in with genetic engineering, but also in a variety of other ways. Neuroscience um, leads to a rethinking of what it means to be an embodied being, um, which is not very similar to the animalistic idea inherited from past discourses. Um, we have um, new kinds of accounts of human cognition, but we also have new kinds of accounts of human bodies. And uh, um, as animals, the extent to which we are animals, that sort of explode the notion that the animalistic is contained by um, aggressive impulses, emotions, um, and other uh, uh, features of that kind. Mm -hmm. I have two questions that I think are about uh, groups. So the first is from Bronwyn Mandy, a lawyer who's a colleague of ours at LC Human Rights. Following on from Professor Klug, how do you view the extension of human rights to peoples, not just in the historical sense of decolonization, but now to indigenous peoples through the Universal Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous Peoples? I find this um, really important and really challenging. So this is not a fully satisfying answer that says, oh, here's how you should think about groups. First, I've stressed relationality as think about our connections. Second, groups are one of the ways in which this comes. I'm not a believer in the idea that you can dispense with the notion of groups and just talk about individuals and their connections. I think it is too meaningful that these are organized in various kinds of groupings. Um, from families to nation states, 
um, and so forth. In the context of indigenous peoples, um, there is a great deal of discussion of group versus individual rights. And it's very important. And it doesn't seem to me to have reached a um, clear closure where we want to say, oh, let's go completely one way or the other. Rather, it identifies a tension that we need to think about and be articulate about um, to uh, deny any kind of collective, significant collective identity to a First Nation and Indigenous people um, would seem to be a violence against their continued existence and against their rights. Um, it's hard to articulate that entirely in terms of the individuals, and that's why there's a discussion of group rights. At the same time, simply speaking in terms of the rights of the whole is to affirm the particular way in which the whole is constructed. And it often comes with the baggage that there are certain spokespeople for the whole. So are you affirming the rights of old men um, in the indigenous community to speak for young women and so forth and so on? There are reasons why the more um, uh, individualistic, if not always categorical, um, notion of human rights needs to still be a part of the discussion, though maybe not the whole of the vocabulary. I think there's some overlap, but uh, I will uh, ask you to maybe expand on this in response to a question from Anya Ekpo, who asks, how do you link the challenge that on the one hand, we want to see the human as relational and recognize that racism occurs through power and oppression, But that were, but then there were also um, hearing and want to respond to specific demands from groups within uh, the transgender community, Black Lives Matter, women's movement, indigenous groups, and so on, who ask for change in the system um, in the name of specific groups. Okay. Um have to extend this to a series of four lectures because that's a, a whole topic in itself, one of which I've worked a lot. Um, first thing to say is that the meaning of group is highly variable in this discussion, and I can't pin it down entirely, but sometimes we mean um, a legally defined group. Sometimes we mean a pretty defined, though not legally recognized group. Sometimes we mean more a network or a movement, right? So, um, these would have different significance for trying to take groups seriously. Um, and in many cases, it would be a problem to ascribe complete internal uniformity. There is a tendency for these kinds of discussions of different, call them identity groups, to fall back into a categorical logic, right? Ah, transgender people, they're all the same. Ah, Black people, they're all the same. Women, they're all the same. The discourse of intersectionality has tried to deal with some of this. Right? There are black women, there are white women, there are Asian women, there are British women. You know. But that's only one of the issues. The other issue is that there are simply innumerable kinds of difference within and cross-cutting these various categories. Right. So um, people who are in a category like homosexual may be rich or poor. Right. They may be documented um, or undocumented immigrants or citizens and so forth and so on. So we need to be careful when in the effort to recognize the importance of any one of these identities, we um, imagine it too separate from the rest of them. 
Um, so that's a first point. But beyond that, I think there are groupings. I'm actually borrowing that particular idea from Nadell, the anthropologist as well, that says, well, we need a word that isn't quite as fixed as group to talk about this. So there are groupings that are potential um, corporately organized highly solidarity groups. High, you know, so they are potential nations like First Nations. Um, they could be organized that way. And there are others that are not imaginably organized that way. They are always going to be dimensions of what's going on in life, um, but they are not um, appealants for a kind of separate autonomous status. So I think there are a bunch of different issues in this. As we seek a more just world, we're seeking combinations of rights, of um, abilities to be able to um, express one's own understanding of oneself and to build viable relations with others. I have deferred until my plan for uh, the next lecture, a concept that's relevant here though, even going back to the Christian tradition. Um, we often think of human beings as having essential defining characteristics and think of these as fixed. So they might be souls or they might be genes. And then we start saying, well, you know, gene editing, that would challenge it. But it's also the case that the discourse of what is human is a discourse of potential in which part of what we understand makes an infant human is the potential for growth and learning and development and acquiring new skills and new tastes. That potential is also a potential for self-definition. And so one of the core underpinnings of a notion of human rights um, would be the right to self-definition, that you can decide for yourself who you are. Now, nobody decides themselves completely who they are. They're born speaking um, certain languages. They're born into certain contexts. They you know, are shaped by all that is around them. And I'm mostly on the side of wanting to remind us that we are not quite as autonomous as individuals as we sometimes imagine. But it is also the case um, that part of justice is enabling people to make choices for themselves about how they understand themselves. You could call this the Kierkegaardian moment if you want, right? In which the, um, the active affirmation of being who you are is important. And that may come in saying, I don't want to be this part of me. I want to be that part of me. I want to change. I want to be more this, not just in an external sense, like I need to come out of the closet and be free about my sexuality or something, but in an internal sense, I want to have better wants. I always find myself wanting to do this thing that is self-destructive. I want to change myself and affirm this other aspect of myself. And so it's important that our human rights discussion recognize this issue of potential and the link of the issue of potential, not only to automatic development, as it were, like children learning language or something, or at least socially conditioned development, but also to moments where there is individual choice. And, we, and that individual choice is not merely a recognition. I am this in an essential way, but an affirmation. 
I want to move forward emphasizing parts of who I have been and de-emphasizing others. Thank you. That resonates with, uh, with a question from Sandipan Tripathi, an alumnus of LSE Sociology now at the National University of Singapore. Um, and the question was, is this about international intentionality? How important is intentionality to our notion of the human? And is there something intuitive to this link between our notion of the human and the notion of intentionality? Intentionality is often taken up as one of the definitions of inhuman. I touched on it like in one word, um, and it planned attention more in um, the third lecture. So it's very important. Some of it is intuitive. Some of it's counterintuitive, I think. Um, the, that depends on what your intuitions are. The issue is sort of basic. Um, will formation, volition, intentionality, um, label a cluster of attributes that are very important for human beings and for who we think we are. You can get into a discussion about free will if you go one direction with this, but the, um, the idea of intentionality is basic to what we understand makes, quote, a mere human body into a person. The person has become able to exercise intentionality. So as you say, that resonates the previous comment, because that might be a developmental thing, that um, you acquire greater ability, um, just like you acquire greater object stability in your perception, you acquire greater ability for intentionality. Um, but it's more than that. Um, it's also a variable, right? Not everybody acquires all and in the same ways. Um, we often exaggerate the autonomy of our intentions, you know, advertising doesn't really affect me, but boy, I want to go buy a new X. Um, the, and you know, there are various different analytic traditions. I mean, There's a big theme for Husserl and the phenomenological tradition to try to think through intentionality and the way in which our relations to the world are always intentional. Um, the, uh, but it's a theme in analytic philosophy and in other ways too, to, um, come to terms with this attribute of human beings um, and also the extent to which this attribute may be shown by organizations of human beings, right? So is a corporation able to exert intention? Well, corporations sign contracts. That must be intentional. Well, what do we mean when they say they sign contracts and have the status and legal right to sign contracts and so forth? I have a question about that. Okay. So Anthony from London notes that in your non-human category, you mention corporations. So can you comment on, is it 21C Citizen United, um, where the Supreme Court granted rights to corporations with no apparent responsibility, unlike humans who can go to jail? Um, well, this is a disastrous ruling by the Supreme Court, um, but I'm not a constitutional scholar or a lawyer, so I'm going to get into all of the internal parts of it. There are three basic ways in which corporate the status of being a corporation 
gets recognized. Um, you can say corporations are merely matters of contract. I mean, if you and I and somebody else want to get together and start a corporation, we sign a contract effectively with each other about establishing its capital and its procedures and so forth. So one understanding of a corporation is a mere creature of contract. A second understanding of a corporation is a delegation of authority from the state. So a chartered corporation in the British sense, but there are American analogs and all this state um, recognizes the corporations and you incorporate in relation to state law someplace. And there are slightly different rules as you will know better than I. Um, the structure is somewhat different in Germany um, than it is um, in the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, it's different in small ways between the US and America, but they issue in things like an, an interesting language difference. Having lived in both countries a lot of my life, I've fascinated by small language differences. And one of them is in American English, you almost never um, use the plural to refer to a corporation. In British English, you often do. You say Unilever have decided to do such and such. Whereas we in the US would hardly ever say um, the same thing. We would always say has. Now that reflects a more serious underlying issue about how tightly corporate and integrated we think the corporations are. And the third notion of what a corporation is, is that the corporation is an artificial person. Now, this is exactly like Hobbes' notion of the state. Um, and it's an influence in the Citizens United decision, which is a decision that corporations have um, rights, that they have civil rights under the U.S. Constitution, including the right to free speech in particular, as arcaded articulated in the Bill of Rights, and that therefore there can't be restrictions on their engagements in political campaigns. Part of what's disastrous about it is that it so undermines the distinction of the corporation from the human being. Um, and uh, the question points to one of those differences around accountability, but there are a variety of others. I mean, corporations, you know, live forever, potentially. Now, you can legally execute a corporation. You could dissolve one. Um, but it's also the case that if you think of a lawsuit between an individual and a corporation, the corporation can stall forever, um, and the individual can't. The individual you know, gets old and runs out of time. So if you suffered from asbestosis, and you want to sue the Manville Corporation, so the Manville Corporation can, and in fact did for decades, just stall and wait for people to die. Um, and so there's an asymmetry between a corporate person and an individual person. Um, the, uh, there are a bunch of different issues in this, and I'd better stop, I'll get excited and go on, because I find it a fascinating theme. But the, the history of corporations, as I said, Hobbes, includes the history of states, the king's two bodies, what's going on. It includes um, an element of religious history. And I think our half forgotten, three quarters forgotten religious history keeps influencing us in which bishops were understood as corporations soul. Um, so a little bit like there's the king as a physical person and the king as the embodiment of kingship. Bishops were the owners of church property, are still in canon law in general, the owners of church property in a certain way. They're a kind of corporation, um, but not just as their private person. So there's a private public issue that is at work in um, the way we should think about this. Um, but what decisions like Citizens United do um, carelessly, in my opinion, that is without thinking very hard about what a corporation is, is 
enshrine as different kinds of people, um, very different kinds of creatures, call them natural human beings and um, artificially created human beings. But um, the naturally created will have to be probed. The artificially created has to be probed as well. Mm -hmm. I have a question from Aisha Trubuchku, um, also a co-director of LSE Human Rights. She asks, to the extent that the idea of humanity masks, as you suggest, power relations and inequalities, what are the risks of mobilizing it as the ground of global politics? Well, you and Aisha must know this better than I do, working can constantly in the human rights arena, but there are um, big risks and big powers, and big risks and big powers tend to go together. So um, avoiding speaking of the human, um, I think, is too disempowering to contemplate, um, which is why the project of trying to figure out how we could think better about the human seems important. Um, but it's certainly the case that, um, as Aisha points out, um, deploying this notion, particularly this categorical notion, um, can create a variety of kinds of, of trouble um, in the world of human rights. Some of that is sort of attitudinal or perceptual. It leads us to imagine more sameness than there is um, in the, the uh, subjects, the people who are there. Some of it is political. It's part of what's at issue with the rejection of human rights understandings by um, some regimes in the world. There's a lot of self-interest in that too. Much of it, um, to cut a long story short, is what it makes us not think about. Um, and uh, for example, capitalism. Right. So the, the way in which the discussion of human rights and humanity in human rights is constructed um, is so shaped by, on the one hand, the religious tradition of thinking about what's human, and on the other hand, states, that um, it leads us to greatly underestimate the extent to which um, capitalism is influential. So if we have a global understanding of the human, all of those different faces representing different you know, costumes and appearances and so forth that I had on one of the slides. That's because we've had imperialism and capitalism. Um, and we've constructed the global human out of this and in many ways subjected to it. Um, so we should be interrogating this and um, you know, figuring out um, where we can go with and beyond this um, I don't think it's a reason to abandon the discussion of the human. Thank you. I have two questions from Safran, a student at the LSE at the moment in London, both of which I, I put to you and both of which I think are important. In what ways do you think that people's differing relationships to their environment changes their conceptions of the human? So we're thinking of the contrast between perhaps uh, indigenous peoples who may sometimes have a stronger relationship with the environment and, uh, and the states that they're uh, facing uh, in, in, in conflict. And the second question, uh, which I think is very on point, you seem to be advocating for an alternative conception of human rights that is relational. 
So the question is, in relational concepts of human rights, do we have a greater obligation to those who we have closer relationships to? Um, the, in both interesting and significant questions. I'm assuming in the first question that environment means the so-called natural environment, though obviously other people um, are also an important part of our environment. Um, I think that the relationship we have to nature is very important in shaping who we think we are. Um, in the first instance, how disembedded and disconnected do we think we as an individual are um, is shaped by occupation and the way in which we work and whether our work puts us in touch with others, but also with nature. And uh, um, I think it's uh, one of the big changes of the modern world, like the emergence of the human rights discourse, that um, so many people are not in close contact with or working in relationship to so-called nature. I keep saying so-called nature because I think it's also the case that um, what we call nature is often nature reworked by humans. Is the farmer in close touch with nature? Well, the farm wasn't natural, as it were. The farm is an interactional product of the relationship to the farmer. But just to continue that example, the farmer has an understanding and relationship to the land and to the seasons and to a long-term process that is different from simply being a consumer going to the grocery store. Um, and I think, therefore, the sense of the human is, is changed by this. If I were going to give one big all-encompassing bit of an answer, it is that um, we can have more or less of an understanding of ourselves as part of a web of relations. If we we can try to limit the relations to other humans, but I think relationality immediately opens up a broader ecological understanding that there are other relations to, though nature is a skewed representation of the other relations in a way. Um, and the relationship finally, isn't to nature in general, which is as artificially constructed as humans in general. It's to nature in particular experience. That's why I talked about experience, you know, work, like are you working on a farm? Um, it's to place. And one of the things that is a challenge for us to introduce into the kinds of logics of thinking about the whole world we have now is the importance of place of relations to physical place. We become more and more aware of the transcending of place with large scale integration and markets and communications technologies. And look, here we are having a discussion which is in no place um, on the web. And yet place is still extremely important um, in people's lives and their understandings of who they are and so forth. So this absolutely um, has to be on the agenda. Now, the other question, um, Sort of, yes, absolutely. I think that we owe special obligations to people that we're close to, but I think this is very tricky and we have to be careful. Um, I think if every parent decided that they had obligations only to children in general and not their own, this would be a recipe for um, a lot of problems in the world. So I don't think that we can go to a kind of radical abstract um, universalism. We need to have a way of... Um, 
appreciating and valuing particular relationships. But closeness is a tricky thing. Um, Adam Smith uh, famously articulated the notion that um, if there were an earthquake in China and thousands and thousands of people died, and might, he might feel bad about this for a day. But if he hurt his finger, um, that would dominate his consciousness, right? Beyond this. And that we are all, you know, in Smith's sense, in concentric circles in which we pay more attention to the closer circle, less attention as it goes out. I don't think that's quite right. And as somebody who's been more involved in thinking about humanitarianism than human rights, I particularly note the extent to which people respond to the idea that they have um, moral relationships, perhaps obligations, to people who are strangers, who are at a distance from them. And, um, and that, I think, needs to stay a part of our thinking. We can't just go to this concentric circles idea alone we have to recognize a more complex problem about um, what relations we recognize. I want to say one more thing about this, which may or may not have been um, implied by the question, which is that um, thinking about connections may be helpful in terms of um, other discourses that overlap human rights, like the discourse of cosmopolitanism and so forth, which can get constructed like human rights in a categorical discussion, a set of individuals. And that's part of what obscures our recognition of capitalism, of colonialism, of trade relations, of all of the ways we are connected in the world, each of which may in, in be dominating or asymmetrical or exploitative and or in fact, good and mutually assisting and positive. Um, and so there are reasons to keep the categorical understandings, particularly where law is involved, um, but there are reasons to complement it with much more relational understanding. And um, we could think about how discussions like that of reparations would be changed by this. Um, one of the, the, the problems that discussions of reparations get into is the idea of, you know, why do I, um, a 21st century um, person, owe any kind of reparations for the actions of 19th century or 18th century people, even if they were my ancestors, whatever, I'm a categorical individual who didn't do that bad thing. Um, and people say, oh, well, maybe you're still benefiting from it. But the relational constructions of this, I think, help us to move past that notion of um, complete non-involvement. I think that is at the point where we will end because we've almost run out of time. I want to thank Craig again very much for this very stimulating talk. I want to thank everyone in the audience for joining, for listening, for all your questions and comments. I'm sorry I couldn't use all of them um, in, in the conversation, but I hope at least on some of the pages that there's a record of the conversations. And we very much look forward to continuing this conversation because it is part of a, a series. So there will be two more lectures over the course of uh, planned currently the year 2021 uh, in perhaps new and better times. So thank you very much, everyone who joined, and thank you, Craig, very much.